Thank you for listening to Truth in Life, a concise Christian belief series. This class was taught on a Sunday morning at Christ the Word Church because we believe that God's Word is truth and that His truth should shape our lives. For more information on our church, visit ChristTheWord.com. Amen. All right. Attributes of God continuing on. This week's topic is the will of God. Hopefully you grabbed a handout, as always, on the way in. So um, here's a passage that probably comes to mind when you think of the will of God. Uh, I'll let you read that while I babble on a little bit. So my goal for this morning is to talk about this in terms of, I mean, it's a class on the attributes of God. So we want to talk about what does God's will mean, but also, as always, we want to try to apply it to our lives and say, okay, what is, how do we discern God's will? particularly for my life, you for your life. How do we discern God's will? But first we'll start with discussing, you know, from a theological standpoint, what do we even mean when we say the will of God? All right, that's an overview of where we're headed this morning, Lord willing. So here's some Hebrew and Greek. I am far from a student of the original languages, so I only know what I read about. I have no ability to, to look at these words and, and uh, you know, give you a whole lot of context or anything, but I've studied it, and what's interesting is that there are these two Hebrew words, so Hebrew would be Old Testament, right? That's the, the primarily the original language for the Old Testament. Um, Ratzon and Hafetz, probably mispronouncing those, but those are the two words that get translated will. But actually, those two words are almost never translated into the English word will. Same thing with the Greek there. Okay, so now we're talking about New Testament. In the New Testament, these three words are the words that get translated into will. But most of the time when these three words appear or these five words all together, most of the time when those are in the original language, they do not get translated into the word will. You guys tracking with me? It may sound like I'm contradicting myself there. Basically, the, will, the, the term, the English word will in, re, in reference to God is used pretty infrequently in scripture. Okay, so there's, you guys are familiar with denotation and connotation, right? What are those? I forget what grade I learned that in, but I remember it all these years later. What's the difference between denotation and? Definition. Okay. Connotation is the way people think of it. Good. Um, and my English teacher, Mr. Miller, taught me to, to remember it this way, denotation, D, dictionary. Denotation, dictionary. It's what the word actually literally means. And connotation is the, you know, what we import into it, um, the meaning behind it. So both of those are important. So remember, these, are, these words are usually not translated into the English word will. They may mean will, that's the denotation, but the connotation of these five words from the original language 
brings in something more than just that strict dictionary definition of the word will. So that's why these five words, when they appear in the original language, don't get translated into will. Instead, they get translated as some other things. Let me give you some examples. Okay. In the Old Testament in particular, those two words are much more frequently translated as pleasure, delight, and favor. So they mean will, but the translators who really know those languages, they believe that, that those words are, in English, more accurately get translated pleasure, delight, favor. Does that make sense? You, I'm sure you don't understand quite where I'm headed yet, but this is important, okay? In the New Testament, these three Greek words, they more frequently get uh, translated into the words wish, uh, will is, is more commonly used than in, than in the Old Testament. So wish, will, counsel, pleasure, way, purpose, okay? So we have pleasure, delight, favor, wish, counsel, way, purpose. These, these are the kinds of English words that, that the translators believe these, these Hebrew and Greek terms match up with. So the bottom line is God's will is what pleases him. There's this idea of delight or favor, pleasure, wrapped up in God's will. So we're studying the attribute of the will of God and my, my beginning point here is that the will of God is what pleases him. It's his pleasure. Thoughts about that or questions? All right, I don't know if that's good or bad. Um, God's will is anything he wants to happen. Let's use this as a working definition for the morning, okay? You may want something bigger, more technical, fancier than this, but uh, this is actually straight from John Frame, um, his systematic theology. This is, in a sense, how he defines God's will. God's will is anything that he wants to happen. All right, to understand God's will, let's, a little better, let's think in terms of our will, okay? As with every attribute, um, God's will is bigger, better, perfect, all these superlatives, and we're not that, but it's communicable, and so we reflect it to some degree. Um, so we may will or wish, let's say we, we may wish many things, have many wants, many pleasures, but our will is obviously limited. So I don't have the power to enact some things. You don't have the power to enact some things that may be your will or your wish, right? Obviously. Um, even when, when that will aligns with, with God, there are things that are outside my control, so I can't do it. I see some people in here who played basketball yesterday. Yesterday I willed to be able to jump higher than I, than I did but it was outside my control. I had no ability. Um, so that, that may have been a will, a wish, a want, but I couldn't do it, okay? I don't have the power to enact some things. And again, even when those things align with, with God, 
they're outside my control. Other times my wills conflict. So think of an example of where you have a will or a wish, but it conflicts and so it doesn't get implemented. Sam, the smirk tells me that you have something insightful. What? Think of what, when does your, when do two of your wills conflict? Can you think of an example? Okay, it's a good start. What else, anybody, can you think? You may want something, but it doesn't happen because your want for something else conflicts with it. You wanna eat a piece of cake that you really shouldn't? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so your will may be um, healthful, great eating habits, but it conflicts with whatever. Yeah, good. <laughs> You guys see that? I think that's, that's a, an easy example. We can all relate to that. Lots of things in life are like that, right? Okay, so sometimes our will conflicts. Sometimes we just want some things more than others. So that's, that example falls into, into, under that category too. So wills may conflict. Um, sometimes I just prioritize. I want, I want these two things, but I want this more, so this wins out preview of where we're headed, this is not how God's will operates. Those things are not in conflict, but our wills are often in conflict. So because of all of that, there are some things that we will or wish that are left unfulfilled, temporarily or permanently, but they're left unfulfilled for those reasons we just went over. Okay, we know this. I don't think I even needed to spend as much time as I did explaining this. You just you just know it. You've lived it. You know that there are things you want that you can't accomplish. You know there are things that you want that are in conflict with other things you want. You know that you categorize and prioritize and put some things higher. Okay, we all know this. That's why we have the words, similar words. So think of these Hebrew and Greek words, multiple words to communicate more or less the same thing. Well, we know that this is the case, and that's why we have different words to express technically the same thing, but they have those connotations. So for example, the, we have the word will, and we have the word wish. How do we use, what's the connotation in English? How do those two differ? When might you, why, why might you choose the word wish over the word will at some point? Yeah, it's more of a want, okay? You, do you see what I'm getting at? Technically, there, you could have the definition be almost the same. So when would you use the word will? When you're more definite about the thing actually being accomplished. Yeah. Okay, so same thing in the original languages of the Bible. There are, um, there are different aspects to it. And so the word will is, we, we see the word will in scripture and oftentimes we import more than we should. Um, when we see the word wish, we may import less than we should. I'm just reminding you that it's oftentimes the same word that could be translated either way. But yeah, I agree with 
with what a couple of you have said, if we use the term will, we're typically meaning something stronger than just a desire or a wish. Okay, so because we, we know that our will is complicated and has all these different aspects, all these different components to it, you can imagine that God's will is no less complex, right? It's probably more so. So God's will has those same complexities and more. It makes sense that he would value some things higher than others, right? Okay. So, because of that, we have um, systematic theology to help us with this. Here are two categories. Um, We've come up with these systematic categories to help us better understand the complexities of God's will. We differentiate and distinguish between different aspects of his wills, plural. Like I said a moment ago, God's will is one, it's united, so they're not not in conflict with each other. So I'll try to always be careful with my terminology here, but we there are wills in scripture. It's complicated. And so systematic theology gives us these categories. Here's one way of, um, of categorizing antecedent will and consequent will. My iPad pencil is still not working, so bear with me. I am going to try to write like that but it doesn't work so well. So it's going to be barely legible and big and weird, but um, that's what we're going to have to do. Okay, so antecedent and consequent wills. Antecedent will is God's general valuation. told you it would be bad. I can't even, my finger's too fat. I can't even see how I've done until I get done and then look up there. Yeah, that is, it was better this morning at my desk when I was practicing. All right. Antecedent will is God's general valuation of some things as good. Okay, so God considers some things good, obviously. Uh, His specific choices among those goods is his consequent will. Hey, it does, if I push hard. No, it was worth a try. Specific choices. I may just abandon this. I don't think it's gonna be helpful. All right, antecedent will is God's general valuations of some things as good as specific choices from those goods, that's his consequent will. Okay, so this is coming directly from John Frame again. God might genuinely value many states of affairs that are simply not compatible with the story he has chosen to tell. So which one, I'll read that again, and then um, which one is his antecedent will and which is consequent? Okay, here's the quote from Frame. God may genuinely value many states of affairs which one is that? 
antecedent will, right? Okay, he may genuinely value many states of affairs that are simply not compatible with the story he has chosen to tell. So the story he's chosen to tell is the consequent will. This is what he implements. This is what he foreordains, and this is what comes to pass. Then he has this antecedent will that's, that is not over it in terms of importance or um, value, but these are the things that he approves of, the things that he likes, that he enjoys, that he wishes, that sort of thing. Okay. Um, I think this is a decent way. Again, this is system. This is just systematic theology. This isn't. Uh, these aren't biblical terms, and there's no proof text to go to in Scripture for this. This is just a way of categorizing. I think it's a decent way of categorizing it. Um, and a lot of Christian groups, in Lutherans, a lot of Arminians, uh, if you read their systematic theology, even Roman Catholics, they may break it up this way in their systematic theology. Of course, the Reformed people have a little different way of, of doing it, and I think it is, is better because those other groups have used this distinction, this antecedent will and consequent will. They've used that distinction to elevate libertarian human free will. That sort of, we've talked about that before. Um, they've used that to, to elevate the importance of libertarian freedom. So... For example, God's antecedent will, they might say, antecedent will there at the top, includes the salvation of all men, but his consequent will awaits the free decisions of human beings. Okay, we've covered this ground before, so I'll move on pretty quickly. They'll take this, which I think is a decent and biblical way of differentiating and categorizing things, but they use it in a way that elevates human freedom, and we, as Reformed Christians, we just don't, think this way. We don't see the Bible as systematically teaching this. So we have a different way of looking at it. Lots of similarities, lots of overlaps, but we'll tend to um, break it into these two, decretive will and preceptive will. Not perceptive, but preceptive. Okay, so decretive will is God's decree. It's his eternal purpose. I'm going to, against my better judgment, I'm going to try this again. Okay, it's his eternal purpose. This is his will by which he foreordains everything. His preceptive will, you can think of this as valuations. Okay particularly as revealed in his will. So it's his precepts. You guys know that term, precepts. This is his, precept, his preceptive will evaluations, the things that he says are right, the things that he says are wrong. You could say that his decretive will up there at the top re represents his control and his preceptive will represents his authority. Okay, so significant overlap between this Arminian, Catholic, Lutheran way of categorizing and our way that I've got them in the opposite order. Um, but there's a lot of overlap here. So God's decretive will, like the antecedent will from here, 
His de- no, his precept, I'm sorry, his preceptive will is like the antecedent will. That's his valuation of every possible state of affairs. Everything that's possible can fit under that category, right? But his decretive will determines what will actually happen. So the difference between the reformed way of doing it with decretive and preceptive will, the difference between that and the other, the other slide there, um, is that our way excludes libertarianism. So we're, we, don't, we don't see that as a valid uh, reason to break the two apart. So we're coming at the same information from a little bit different angle. Um, so it's not our understanding, our way of categorizing it says it's not based upon foreknowledge or libertarian free choices, but is but God's own decision to write history in a certain way. Okay. Um, Again, let me just briefly note that neither one is higher than the other. It's not like one wins out over the other. And you need to avoid the tendency to say, okay, his preceptive will loses out to the decretive will. That's, That's not what what we mean. One is not higher than the other, and one does not win out over the other. God's will is one, and none of his will is thwarted. But that, that leads to a question. That this, any discussion of this always very quickly leads to one question. Can you think of what that question would be? Why did God choose some and not others? Yeah, um, that's... That's the question. I, I'll, we'll talk about it a little bit differently than that. But yeah, it always leads there, right? God's will. Any discussion of God's will, and particularly if you dive in and say, okay, decretive will, preceptive will, the question becomes, um, does God desire the salvation of everyone? You could see, you could see that coming probably, right? Well... Let's talk about it. Does God desire for people to repent of sin? Okay, yes. He certainly commands it. So does he really want that, though? Yes, all right, good. A couple of the other classes that have come before you guys were a little hesitant to answer that. I'm glad you're not. The Bible says it, right? The Bible declares it. So one of the drums I beat on every week is that I don't need to wrap my head around it to embrace it. So if God's will says it, we should be people who say it loudly and are not embarrassed. Don't, don't say, well, we're reformed or a Calvinistic people, so we can't say that. God's word says it. Okay, so does God desire people to repent of sin? Yes. Does he want it? Yes. Does he wish it? Does he will it? Yes. Yes. And now we're getting a little bit murky. He does. Yes, no, no question about it. But this is where we get into why I spent so much time at the beginning talking about the different aspects of his will and those words in the original language that get translated in different ways. We can't take a massive concept like God's will and just zero in on one particular meaning of it. It's complicated. Even my will is complicated, okay? My will for, you know, health and fitness conflicts, conflicts with my desire for pizza. That's a, 
stupid, simple, just really so obvious example. Well, God is bigger and, and so much bigger and more complicated than that, of course, it becomes more difficult. So it's a good question. Does God desire the salvation of all? I think we, we have to say yes, we want to say yes, but it is complicated. Does he desire for people to repent of sin? Does he wish it? Does he will it? Yes, with some qualifications. Um, Think about the way we pray. Think about the way we as Christians pray. We'll often pray for God's will to be done, right? Do you pray that way? Lord, I want your, we want to do God's will. We want God, I'm sorry, Nate. That kingdom come, that will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Yeah. And so then people, you dig in and say, okay, on earth as it is in heaven, what does that mean? And, and you know, it becomes complicated. But yes, our first answer is yes. Um, and then when, I, when I'm praying for God's will to be done, I'm praying something that's good, right, and appropriate. I'm sure you've been in a group where someone prays that way or is about to pray that way, and then the Cal some Calvinist comes along to point out that God's will is always done. So you don't need to pray that way, right? Guys have been in settings where that where that happens, or you've done it. I I think I've done it. Are you with me? The look on some faces makes me wonder if I'm explaining it well. So, the Calvinist, some well-meaning Calvinist, is going to come along and say, "Well, God's will is all is always done, so there's no there's no need to pray for God's will to be done." Is that true? No, because God commands us to pray. Okay. But in our prayer, we also, as believers, have already submitted to God's will. So as we pray, we're asking that our requests would be answered, but also to the will of God. Like, we don't necessarily have to say it because we've already submitted ourselves uh -huh. to the will of God. Okay. So, Sorry, but God gave us that example to pray, saying, Thy will be done. Like, that is what Jesus told us. That's how Jesus told us to pray. And I think that's where we Good. I love that you said that. I love the answers you guys are giving. Let me just play the other side of it a little bit, though. Isn't that Calvinist who came along and said, Oh, you don't need to pray that way. God's will is always done. Isn't God's will always done? Okay. Yeah, I think there is, in prayer, there is that component to it where we are aligning our will to God's and asking that God align our will to His. I don't think that's the whole of it, but that's a huge part of it. Any other thoughts? Yeah. Yeah, I agree. If God is asking us to align, you know, we're asking for 
our will to align with God's, isn't that the same when you're talking about salvation, that he wants us to align our will with his, to have a relationship with him? I think so. Yeah, I think that's right on. Okay. Yeah, I like the, that's a good point to make. I mean, we, and that's why, that's the whole thing is God's will. You can't use that one word to mean all these other things. Now you, you can, and God's word uses that word in multiple ways. Our job, my goal this morning is to explain that the topic of God's will has many dimensions to it. Okay, so I believe that I believe the answer is that God desires or wishes or wills all of those desires are an expression of his preceptive will, not necessarily his decretive will. Would you say, Matt, that you know, when you're deciding between your health and your visa, it's kind of like God saying, I want all to be saved, I wish all would be saved, but I want them to repent more than I want them to be saved. So it can't be both. Sort of. I don't want to quibble with the words. I think your, your thinking is 100% on the right track. But remember, I do want to be careful about categorizing in terms of importance. So I can't wrap my head around it, but those two wills in God's those two wills of God are not in conflict as much as my pizza will is in conflict. So it's such, my example is so dumb and so simple that it really doesn't do justice. I'm just trying to get us thinking in that direction, but that analogy falls short immediately, really, really quickly. But yeah, I, I understand what you're saying and I, I really do agree with where you're headed with that. So does God desire all men to be saved? Again, I think that, that he desire, that desire is an expression of his preceptive will, not necessarily his decretive will. His decretive will always comes to pass, whereas his preceptive will, those desires are not always fulfilled. So there's nothing contrary to Calvinist theology, Reformed theology, in the assertion that God wants everyone to be saved. Hope we come away just giving a quick answer of yes to that. There are scriptures we can look to for this, so I won't take the time to read all of these, but I have two examples from the Old Testament, two from the New Testament. In each of these examples, God is expressing his desire in pretty passionate terms. Okay, there's emotion behind this. It's a passionate plea. We know from the Bible God is gracious and loving to all his creatures, including the unrighteous, so he gives rain to the just and the unjust. He gives joy to those who are his and those who aren't. Um, but his desire for men to be saved is pretty clear in Scripture, and it's communicated passionately. 
So does God desire the salvation of all men? I think yes. Um, if scripture says it, then we can safely state it plainly, even if we don't understand it completely. But we, yet we have these helpful categories in systematic theology that help us deal with, with the intellectual side of it. So why is it that he desires all men to be saved, but we know they aren't? I think it's good that we want to understand that as best we can, and I think those systematic theology categories help us do that. Yeah, Roger, what do you think? Yeah, I, I, I've been thinking about this. It's like, what's the, and, and, and God's law comes to mind, right? What he wants, what his desire is, what his laws, his decrees, what he wants, you know, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt, you know, obey your parents. The good things of God that he, that he, that he wants and desires versus what he does. Mm -hmm. He desires all men to be saved, but he only saves, but he saves some. Mm -hmm. So it, it's, that, it's that conflict between what he wants and what he what he finalizes and what he does in, mm -hmm. his, in his will. Um, okay. Through his wisdom, right, he makes those choices. He, 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 he decrees what is right and what he is going to do, but it also aligns with what he desires. Yeah. In his laws. Yeah, and I think there. Hopefully you're, you're picking up on the continuity of this class from week to week. We, we covered wisdom and then we covered power and I think will flows nicely out of that for the reasons you just said. Um, Nate, I would add to that in answer to your question. Yeah, it can be done, but I think it's hard. It's complicated and to do that would require probably some, some significant understanding of Hebrew and Greek in order to be able to do it, right? Because you have to, what I think would be involved is understanding it well enough to go back to the original language and pick up on nuance and, and connotation and so forth. And that's pretty hard to do. People like me just have to read other people's commentary on that. Um, Yeah, and he wrote, there's a great section in the Institutes, more than a section, um, he deals with God's will in the Institutes extensively. I'm not sure it's any easier to understand than going back and reading the original languages, but it's good. It's good stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and without these systematic categories to help us think it through, you could come away very confused by those 
by those sections. I mean, all throughout the Old Testament, you see um, what appear to be conflicts in God's will in those areas. Okay, um, before I totally run out of time, let's do some application here, okay? What is, so what is God's will for my life? Remember the Calvinist from earlier? Well, now he, he comes along again with an answer to this question, what is God's will for my life? Remember, he's the one who's really into God's decretive will, right? Very heavy on the decretive will. So he comes along and answers, whatever happens, that's God's will. What's God's will for my life? Whatever happens. Then the reformed preceptive guy, okay, he comes and he says, just read the Bible. It's all in the Bible. The precepts are there. What's God's will for my life? Read the Bible, sola scriptura. Then a third well-meaning Christian comes along and he encourages prayer. Okay, implying that God will give you a strong feeling that shows you which way to go, and you'll just know. Okay, so these three, three possible answers here that I'm proposing. What is God's will for my life? Well, whatever happens. Uh, what is God's will for my life? Just read the Bible, man. It's all in there. And the third one is pray about it. You're just going to know. God will reveal it to you. Well, none of those are completely wrong, are they? I don't think any of them are completely wrong. I think this gives you another sense of why systematic theology gives us these categories to process and think this through. God's will is complex. Um, so the, the decretive guy, the first guy, he's not really all that helpful, but in a sense he's right. The preceptive guy, the second one, he just misses the point altogether. Um, the guy with the question is just wondering whether to go to law school or not. So the first answer is not all that helpful, and the second one completely misses the point. The third guy, I don't mind him either. He probably knows from experience that God guides us and directs us when we, when we seek him, when we pray. We're all for those things, too. So he's not completely wrong, either. Uh, so what do we do? What do we do for uh, ourselves or as we're guiding others? If you're like me and you have children who are entering into big life questions like this, how do we steer our kids? Yeah. I. I mean, that's what this whole lesson is about. God's will is complicated, and there are the different aspects to it, and all three of those are helpful, but if you isolate any, any one, it's ridiculous. So Christians are encouraged to know that God's decretive will will be done, and Christians who know their Bible, who know those precepts, they'll rule out all kinds of enticing options that just don't fit with God's preceptive will, okay? So that's helpful as well. Um, and scripture never, adv never advises us to be led by feelings apart from his word. So, you know, we're blending two and three together and we're gonna use all of them. The, the, the problem is that the question seems to imply that there's only one answer. Many life decisions aren't like that. 
where God requires one choice and forbids all the others. So we need wisdom, and that gets back to the lesson from two weeks ago. So these do, I think, fit together. So our choices, we need wisdom. Our choices need refinement. A big choice like choosing what city to live in may not conflict explicitly with, with God's word, but the third guy's helpful after prayer and thought and receiving counsel from people around you, right? One choice may come out ahead of some others, or you may start ruling out other choices that don't fit with that. So you're blending those and you're using wisdom to discern God's will. All right, we're about out of time. I want to make a couple more quick points. So God wants us to make decisions as wisely as possible. That is his preceptive will. So what's the answer to our question? I think God guides his people through spirit-given wisdom based upon scripture, of course, that allows us to understand what's at stake in those choices and make a good decision, evaluating them in a godly way. Um, his, decree, his decretive will certainly opens and closes doors. So the decretive will, what he foreordains, what actually happens in his providence, he's causing all of that to work together for your good. So doors are opening and closing in terms of his will for your life. His preceptive will, his word, always guiding us, telling us what he forbids and ruling out choices. And then he gives us wisdom so that we can discern it and apply it. The last thing I want to say, we make foolish decisions, right? I've made a ton of foolish decisions. So when you make a foolish decision, you haven't missed out forever on God's will for your life. I don't know exactly where to put that under our systematic categories, but I do know that when I do something that's foolish, even something really foolish that affects, that has long-lasting effects, that doesn't cause me to miss out on God's will for the rest of my life. I think if I could go back and explain that to my, you know, 30-year younger version of me, that would be helpful. So I'm hoping it's helpful to some of you here. Um, Avoid foolishness, avoid folly, but when you fall into it, you haven't missed God's purpose for your life. Instead, you can always turn to God again and seek wisdom and be confident that his decree, that decretive will for you is good, okay? What he causes to happen because he knew, he foreknew your foolish choice, that decretive will is for your good. You haven't missed out and ruined your life. There's no way for you to ruin your life if you're in Christ because his decree of will is for your good. And it's a blessing and it will all work together for his glory. So that's it, out of time, let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, thank you that your wisdom and your power and your will are all one and they're all perfect and that they are for our good. I pray that you would help us discern it, discern your will for our lives, make good choices. We love you. We want to serve you better, so help us as we strive to do that. Guide us now as we enter into worship. In the name of your son, Jesus, amen. Thank you for listening to Truth in Life. If you enjoy this series, make sure to subscribe. And remember, this is truth to live by.